You know, last week I told you that I just finished reading a biography on Eric Little, who was famous in the movie um, Chariots of Fire. Remember that old, old movie? Well, he goes back way before that. It's kind of interesting when you read about people and you see who they really were like, you know? And he was actually about five feet nine, and he was very stocky, muscular guy. Um, he had a, a chiseled chin, chiseled features. His face was kind of long, and they said it looked longer than it was because his blonde hair receded early. He had a haircut kind of like mine, um, but he was younger than me when he lost most of his hair. And he used to say his mother said it was because he took too many hot showers. That was one of his favorite lines, I guess. But they said he had a very likable smile and these bright blue eyes that were either twinkling with mischief or looking earnestly into yours in a way that was just kind of looked into your soul. And they said he was the guy that in all ways was opposite falsehood. He was just as genuine as he could be. What he said was what he was. He was kind of a quiet guy in a lot of ways, but he was just, he just loved the Lord. And, and people talk about when he would race, in those days you used to have, you had a little trial to dig your own little holes to get ready to race to put your feet in. And they would borrow that. And as soon as he was done, he would make sure everybody got one. He would share his own with other people all the time. And they said that they didn't have sweats and stuff like we have today. And guys would bring their own coats to put over them because it was in Great Britain that they lived. So it would get kind of cold. And if somebody forgot, like on one occasion, he took his own coat off and put it around the person. He switched with another runner to give him a better lane, to give him a better chance to win. I mean, this was just the kind of guy he was. One time, a black man was participating, and he was the only black man there, and they didn't know how to relate to him. This one guy said, we didn't know how to relate to this guy. But then we looked over, and there was Eric with his arm around him laughing and befriending him. He just, he didn't know an enemy. I mean, he just, he, he was just that kind of person. They said his strength came that every day he would spend time with God every morning. And sometimes people saw him in the distance, and when he would be sitting just silently praying with God, he would get this smile on his face like he had a silly joke that he had just shared with the Lord. He was just that genuine. And so when he died as a missionary in a Japanese internment camp at the end of World War II, all Scotland mourned. He's still their greatest athletic hero. And it's because of his character that people are still making movies and writing books about him today. Instead, his character is far more important than his athletic achievements. There was just something about the man. Have you ever known anybody that just lived the opposite of falsehood? They were really the epitome of truth and and integrity and honesty um, and authenticity. He was that kind of guy. There's not a lot of people like that, really, that are around, but, but he was that kind of guy. And Paul was that kind of guy. And Paul is writing about that at the finish of his life. We are in a series called Finish. In 2 Timothy, Paul's life is ending. And he's talking about you know, how we need to live to be the opposite. As our life ends, we need to be the opposite of falsehood. And you know what's going to keep us from ending the race strong? He wants us to finish our race strong. That's our life. But any task that God has presently given you, he wants you to finish it strong. And one of the main things that's going to keep you from getting there are people that come along and want you to do what's false. And so he's writing to Timothy, his beloved son, who's heading over these churches, kind of an overseer of these churches in Ephesus in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he's saying, you know what, Timothy? If we're going to finish strong, we've got to watch out for these false teachers because they're 
They're always around. And we need to finish the opposite of falsehood. And it's kind of interesting what he does. It almost gets a little confusing. We're going to make it as, as clear as we can today. But he, he contrasts falsehood with truth. And he goes back and forth and back and forth. And now this is what the false looks like. And now this is what the truth looks like. And now this is what the false looks like. And he's going to contrast them. And that's what we're going to look at today and see what is, what is the way we should live? What, how, how should we conduct ourselves? And how can we keep ourselves safe from those that want to get us to go the wrong way so that we can finish our life strong without being taken off on the wrong direction? Next week, we'll look at Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. So I encourage you to read that and so you're prepared. But this week we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. We'll finish the second chapter. And, and as we start today, we're going to look at just the beginning here, verses 14 through 18. Let me read that. Paul writes, Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value. And only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. He's going to say here, be a true teacher, not a false one. So he says, keep reminding him of these things. So we got to say, well, what was he talking about? Remember last week, he said, the main thing that you need to remind people about is the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel, we're not just talking about the message of who Jesus was, but basically the whole Bible from Jesus' perspective as he taught it. We need to teach it and we, we need to remember it, and we obviously need to teach it correctly. And he says, then there's going to be people that come along that are going to quarrel. And they're going to quarrel over all sorts of things. Some people just like to argue. And they're going to argue all sorts of things in the Bible. And they say, well, that can't be true because of this. And that can't be true because of this. And sometimes it's sincere, and they're trying to find things. And sometimes they just want to argue over words. And they just want to stir things up. And they will argue over anything that you bring up. And they're just going to question everything and they're going to get into all these quarrels. And he says, don't, don't get into that. Don't go down that path. Um, it's not going to be a valuable. And in the end, it will ruin them. It ruins the listener. And the word ruins in Greek was catastrophe, from which we get the English word catastrophe. Same word, basically. <laughs> but they spelled it with a K. So that was the difference. So you might have noticed that. There's a K instead of a C. Um, but he says, that's no valuable. I mean, it doesn't help people, right? When people just argue over silly stuff. It's like the news you know, networks, you know, they, they have to stay on 24 hours, so they find anything they can bring up that's going to cause controversy, you know? And it's, it's, it's kind of like people with the Bible sometimes. And he says, don't, don't get caught up in all that falsehood. And then he says, what you do need to do. So see how he's already done that? Make sure you remember the Bible Watch out for these guys that are going to try to twist it to say what they want and everything else. And then he goes back, you make sure that you behave the right way. And this is probably the most, verse 15 is really the key to the whole passage. He says, do the very best you can to present yourself as one approved, as one who has been tested. You are a workman, and the way to look at this is, if you have a job, 
Do they inspect what you do? You should be one that your job as a Christian, your life as a Christian, when they test you, when they inspect your life, they see what they should see. Now, we have some people here. And, um, Mark, I mean, you, you have a warehouse, right? You know, and they come in, right? The top brass comes in and checks that warehouse. It's got to be in good shape. I mean, I've talked to other people. I mean, I've just, just seen you. And that's a good example. You have a warehouse. It has to be in shape. Now, I've had a lot of different jobs. I wasn't, wasn't born a pastor. Um, I had other jobs at different points. And I have been in jobs where people just absolutely go crazy because the top brass is coming in, Right? And everybody's worried. And sometimes they just go crazy. And, and then I've been in other jobs where, you know, they're not that concerned. What's the difference? One of those companies, the ones that's not that concerned, they were ready. They're always ready. The other people are worried because they're not ready. We want to be ready. Um, when I was a pastor at a church, I was one of the, an associate pastor at a church in San Diego, and one of the guys that attended our church was Mike Riley. And Mike was then the head coach of the San Diego Chargers. And Mike was just a very unassuming, really likable guy. And at the church, we all just treated him as Mike. You know, he was just, you know, just a regular guy. Um, and he wasn't there a lot on Sundays um, during the football season. Uh, but during the rest of the year, Mike was around. And one time I was in the courtyard with Mike, and I started talking to him. I said, Mike, you've met so many wonderful people. So many, you've had so many experiences with people through the years. Anything that stands out to you of anybody that just really was kind of above above board, you know, just really a, an overachiever or whatever. And right away, without missing a beat, he mentioned the legendary linebacker, Junior Seau. And he said, here's the interesting thing about Junior. He said, any time of the year, I could have him step on a, weight, on a scale and he would weigh his game weight. He was that disciplined that he would weigh the right weight all year round. He kept himself in that kind of condition. That, that's just incredible. And that's kind of what's being said here is, if God was going to come to check today, would you be weighing your game weight? Probably not a good illustration with um, Thanksgiving coming up. <laughs> but I'm not picking on you. Um, I, I, if you feel self-conscious about it, send it my way. But, but the point is, you, know, you, you still see that the point is that we need to be ready for whenever God, you know, would, would come, because God's always there every day. How are you doing? Are you walking with God? Now, what do we need to do? The specific example that he gives is we need to correctly handle the word of truth. Now, the word of truth is the Bible, and it's what we talked about earlier. It's the gospel. It's the message that the Bible gives us, all that Jesus has taught us from the Bible. So do we handle that correctly? And to handle correctly is one word, and it's a cool word. I, there's this guy, his name was Theodoret, and he was, a, he was like, um, he was a scholar, like way, way back, centuries ago, and we're still reading his stuff. And so he defined this, and, and as well as anybody, he said, it's a plowman drives a straight furrow. That works for Oakdale, doesn't it? A plowman drives a straight furrow, but it's more in the sense of build, building a road. So you take a plow and you get rid of the stumps and you get rid of the trees and you get rid of the boulders, right? And you make a straight road right to where you need to get. We should be able to handle the Bible in such a way that it's a straight road. And when somebody talks to us about what the Bible says, 
it, we don't get caught up with the boulders and the rocks and the trees and all these different crazy, you know, controversies that people make up and often don't make any sense. Like the end times, we don't know for sure. You know, we can talk about it, but let's not get in arguments over something that Jesus says we don't know for sure. You know, we need to be able to say, well, we don't know for sure. But these things we know for sure, and we, we have a straight path that people can understand because we know the basics, the foundations of our faith. We major on the majors, and we get people to where they need to be. That's what he's saying. And if we aren't prepared in that, then when God inspects us, so to speak, we say, well, I don't really know my Bible as well as I should. And, and we should be prepared to know our Bibles well. And then he, he goes back again. He flips back to the other side and he says, avoid those people that have godless chatter. In other words, they're just endless sounds and they're saying things that aren't right. And you know, oftentimes we talk about the more time you spend with God in the Bible and the more time you read it and you trust him with it and you just know, you know, the, you just study it and you apply it to your life, what will happen? You will grow to be more godly. The more time you spend arguing over frivolous points and trying to disprove this or that and not reading the Bible just for what it says and apply it to your life, you will grow to be more ungodly. That's what he's saying here. So you can either choose to be more godly or more ungodly. And he says, and if you grow to be more ungodly, he gives him two illustrations about being ungodly. One is about gangrene. And by the way, Luke, he may have actually been, in those days you would dictate your letters and another person would write it down and check the grammar and all that. And uh, we believe that that was Dr. Luke, his physician, who was with him, as we'll learn later. And so um, he has some medical terminology in here that he doesn't have in a lot of his letters. So probably Luke maybe said, gangrene might be a good idea. Um, and so he said, okay, put it down. So he puts down gangrene. And when we think about gangrene, um, we don't see much of it. And we might see somebody who's lost a limb because of it, but a lot of us are not that familiar with it. But in those days, it was pretty rampant. It was a horrible disease. It still is. And um, he's basically saying it just spreads like that. It spreads to the body so that you lose limbs because of this. And then he gives examples of somebody, a very specific example. And he talks about a guy named Hymenaeus. And back in his first letter that he wrote to Timothy, he talked about Hymenaeus. And he says, Hymenaeus was teaching things that are not in the Bible. And he was getting everybody so worked up that you know what he said to do? He said, kick him out of the church. He said, kick him out of the church and send him over to Satan. Which is to say, have him look at the world and see what Satan's world is like. And see what he likes about that and see if he'll come back and get things right. And if he doesn't, then there's nothing we can do. But we can't let a person like that try to teach what Jesus isn't teaching. He's taking plain, straightforward facts and just trying to twist things. And so, unfortunately, Hymenius did not come back. He made a new pal, a guy named Philetus, and they apparently moved to Rome, where Paul was, and they were teaching all sorts of their crazy stuff. And we don't even know for sure what he was teaching. He's alluding to some strange thing, teaching about the resurrection, that's just getting everybody all worked up and causing problems. And he says, don't be like that. And watch out for people that are like that. And so, you know, his, his point is, is that we need to be true teachers but not false teachers. Now, I want to raise something for you that is very, very serious today um, and actually troubled me a lot. Just talking to Clifton about it this morning, too, because it's been on my mind a lot, and Mitch and I have talked about it. But there was some research done. It was done by uh, Legionnaire Ministries and also by Lifeway uh, Research. These are pretty, you know, 
well thought of groups, organizations. They did this research. I, I always, you know, when they research, they do these surveys. It's always like nobody asked me, right? Um, so who did they ask? But, you know, so you always have to take these things with a grain of salt. But whenever they're fairly extreme, you say, wow, they're... There's something, there's some consistency going on. Two different groups have done these research and they're coming out the same place. And what they're finding is that people who would self-identify as conservative believers or as evangelicals, and, and we've seen this even on the news, right? They're not always saying what the Bible says. They may say they're an evangelical, but they're not really saying what the Bible says. They don't know their Bibles correctly. And so listen to some of the things that came up here. One is two-thirds, 69% of America has basically disagreed with original sin. So, so most people who would say they're Christians in our country, conservative believers, and I hope that's not you, would say, well, I don't know if, if one sin is bad enough. I mean, I'm not that bad. The Bible's very clear on this. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Compared to God, we're all born sinners. And anything we do apart from him is sin, and we, we fall short. It's, it couldn't be more clear, and that's just one verse. We could go on and on. And yet, the majority of people in our country who say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, even, and this is among those that would identify as being conservative with the Bible, don't believe in original sin. Is that disturbing? Um, and then the other one is the majority of U.S. adults, 58% said that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly, from regularly attending church. And yet Jesus said that he, I will build my church. It's a kick in his shins to say that. Now, there are times when we spend time alone. You know, we go through seasons, things might happen. Um, we might be between churches or there might be persecution, but that shouldn't be our goal and that shouldn't be, be regular. Here's another one. is 59% said that the Holy Spirit is a force like Star Wars. They don't understand that the Bible says repeatedly in this book alone, it interchanges God's name with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit and it shows that we have one God who eternally existed as co eternally existing in, in three co-equal persons god the father god the son and god the holy spirit and, and i mean these, it just, some of this is really kind of shocking six in ten americans agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not of objective truth most people are basically good 52 percent god accepts the worship of all religions 51 percent and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, here's one that's very disturbing. 78%, 78% um, believe that uh, Jesus was just, how did they say, the best way to explain it um, here is that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God, not that he was God. 78%. Now, what's really disturbing about that is that's the same belief that Arius had. And Arius was the Hymenaeus of the early church. The Arians were considered like a cult. And Arius, they had two councils to look at the Bible as they put it together. They said, you don't fit. And he was kicked out of the church. Now, I'm not advocating that we kick anybody outright, at this point, because I think a lot of people just, it's ignorant. They don't realize that they weren't doing this, but that's not teaching what the Bible teaches. 
And they were actually kicking people out for that. Now, I'll give myself as an example. When I was young, I used to believe that Jesus, Son of God, he was just a great man. I didn't understand that he was God. That opened the door for me. So there may be people that just nobody's taught them yet. And if that's, you know, that may be us as a church falling short. But I hope that's not true with you. So, so when we talk about this whole idea of um, are we correctly handling the word of God? You know, are we correctly handling the word of truth? If in any of those things you maybe never heard that before or that's new to you, then come and talk to us and, and try to get those things straight because you're actually somewhere along the line, somebody's given you false information. And make sure you don't pass that on because inadvertently you could become a false teacher. So that's why it's so important that we know, I mean, even these are just considered the basics of the teachings of the Bible. But we need to know them and teach them correctly so that people don't get confused and so that they really know God for who he is. Very important stuff. Now, the next thing he does is he gives an illustration. He, he moves to, to illustration here. And he talks about being a noble vessel, not an ignoble one. Starting in verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles uh, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepare to do any good work. Now, these are really two different illustrations. The first illustration, we believe, is an illustration about a house. And the house would be the church, because that's what he's talking about right now. So he's talking about the house as the church, and the foundations to that house, the thing that holds the house together, is God himself. God holds the house together. And it's, it's this idea that, you know, we can do the best we can, but God is the one who holds the house together. And then he gives an illustration, really, he, he actually ties in to Numbers chapter 16, where was there a guy named um, Korah who turned against Moses and God, very much like Hymenaeus and Philetus. And what he's saying here in these quotes, listen, is he's saying God knows who they are. You see, Paul and Timothy, they thought Hymenaeus was a true follower of Jesus Christ. There was a point in time where he seemed really legit, and they maybe were really excited about his future. He possibly had some real teaching gifts, and they got excited about Hymenaeus. Then it turns out he wasn't. What was wrong? Did they miss something? They may not have seen it, but what this passage is saying is that before Hymenaeus was born, God saw it. He knew exactly what was going on, and he was taking care of business. And he goes on to say, if people say that they're believers, but they behave in evil ways, and this can happen even in a church, God says, they're not in, they're out. And then he moves to another illustration about a house. And in this illustration, God is the master of the house. And that in his house, he has all this, these vessels, these articles, which would be like plates and cups and things. And some of those are for nice purposes. In our house, if we have a real special meal, Carrie brings out the china, right? Really nice and everything. If we have kids over, if we have the curry kids over, we don't use the china, right? Okay? We use something very different, okay? And, and so you have different things for different purposes, right? And, and, you have the, and so we have to be careful what we do. And some of them, and the idea is, is some of these purposes, if they're like pottery, um, that clay pottery, this would be probably 
the, the word for this is it's like broken pottery. What's its purpose? Its purpose is to be thrown out. Its purpose is to be thrown in the trash. But then you say, well, I, I'm a dish, and I'm not really clean. I haven't really been walking with God. Well, then, then take the dish soap and take the sponge and start scrubbing. And you do that by just spending time with God and praying, telling him you're sorry, confessing your sins, and just, you know, he's, he's already forgiven you. You just tell him, you, you know, get it off your chest and move on, and then you're clean again, and everything's fine. But if you're faking it, and if you're not a true believer, ultimately you'll be thrown out, and God already knows it, and that's what he's saying. It reminded me of Acts chapter 5. Remember Acts chapter 5? There's a man named Simon, who's a young man, probably in his early 20s, maybe mid-20s, and like most young people, you know, as a younger man, he was very emotional and kind of impetuous and kind of, you know, he, he kind of got hot-headed at times, a little bit more even than others. They're a very emotional guy, but with a lot of, a lot of, a huge heart and a lot of potential for leadership, but just a lot of difficulty getting himself under control. And he met a man named Jesus, and Jesus changed his life. Jesus said, I'm going to make a rock out of you. I'm going to make a rock out of you. And in Aramaic, which is the language they spoke, he called him Kephas. In Greek, it's Petros. What do we call it? Peter. So he says, you're going to be Peter. So Jesus goes to heaven, and Peter, Peter becomes the leader in the church, the main leader in the church. And he encounters some people called Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira had money, and they lived in Jerusalem, and they were probably urbane and well-educated, not a country boy like him. And they looked like they had it together. Boy, people were excited when they joined the church. And then they sold their property and they gave money to the church. And boy, people were excited. Until it turns out that God revealed to Peter that they were holding most of that money back and they were using it as a personal business transaction. And apparently there was a lot more going on too. And so Peter called them on it. And at first they looked like they were China. But it turns out they were broken pottery. And at that moment, both of them died, and they were taken out and buried. See, God knows what's going on, and I think he did that as an example to show us that. He doesn't do it all the time, thankfully, because we'd have a lot of bodies around. Um, but, but he did that. And it, that's, the, that's the point of what he's saying here. And, and it's a question of, are we noble or ignoble? You know, have we really given our lives to Christ? Are we sincere are we in a personal relationship with him? And understand this. What he's also saying here is God is in control. You aren't. You can't change all the people in the world. And you can't change people that are not following God. And you can't make people that are quarrelsome kind. You can't do that. God, however, is taking care of it. And we can relax. And we can be at peace. But we do need to take care of ourselves and make sure that we scrub ourselves clean. Um, and we do that by spending time with God in prayer and reading our Bibles and developing relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ and being active and serving Him. And as Eric Little used to say, it's all about complete surrender. You know, have you completely surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ? Which is to say, would you do anything He asked you to do? Now think about that. Anything. Would you? And that's where he wants us to be. Now, this last section, he talks about the fact that we need to be kind, not quarrelsome. Starting in verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord 
out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So we need to be kind, not quarrelsome. He starts off and he says, you need to flee from the evil desires of your youth. A lot of times people think that this, you know, you know, we need to flee from sexual sins and there may be some truth there. But within the context, it's more this idea like we were talking with Peter. When, when people are young, men and women, remember when you're younger, you tend to be more emotional. And you tend to lose your temper quicker. And you tend to be more impetuous. And, and so it's really important when you're young to keep those things under control. Because it's just natural, especially as you're growing and hormones and everything else, and you can just get really worked up, and you've you got to understand that's where it is. And then as you grow in maturity, hopefully you mellow out more and you're able to rein those things in. I know when I was younger, I used to get a lot more upset. I remember one time, I was probably in my early 20s, and some guy cut me off, and I think they showed me the bird, and they were, you know, and some other things. Boy, I got ticked off, and I went after him. I went after him. There were like three of them, and I went after him, but I was going to show him. Fortunately, I was driving a Ford Pinto, um, <laughs> and it started having a coughing fit. So, uh, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, I would have been in all sorts of trouble. But, you know, when we're young, we do those kinds of things. Timothy was younger. He wasn't that young, but he was probably mid to late 30s, and compared to Paul, who's mid to late 60s, he thought of him as, you know, being a younger man. So he's saying, you need to guard yourself, but we all need to guard ourselves. And then he goes in and he says what we need to do. Again, see the contrast. Don't be like this. Be like this. Don't be like a, a young person who's real emotional and under, out of control, but instead, do what's right. Trust God. Faith. Love people unconditionally. Have peace. Wait on him. Um, one scholar Ralph Earl put it this way. He said, it is not enough to run away from what is wrong. We must run after what is good. It's not enough to say, okay, I'm not going to be a bad person, but I'm going to seek after those things that are good so that I can grow in those areas and grow in my relationship with God. And then after he says that, he goes back to the bad guys. And he says, they're foolish and stupid. Those are hard words. One of those words, I think, actually means Moron, we get the word moron from. So these are not very kindful words. Um, he, he's saying these guys are really bad guys. But what he's saying about them, and this is interesting, is they're ignorant, but not because they lack intellectual ability. They're ignorant because they choose to be. Have you ever met anybody like that? They choose not to hear the truth. There are people like that out there. And any time you talk to them about any topic, they're always on the defense, and they never hear a word you say because they're always thinking about what they're going to say in response. And they can't have a regular conversation. And it's just, you, you just realize whatever you say, you're just talking in circles with them. It's just going around and around and around until you get dizzy and everybody gets upset. And what he says to do is have nothing to do with them. When, you know, you give everybody a chance, but when people get to that point, you just sort of avoid them. You just say, we're not getting anywhere. There's no need to talk anymore. 
you, you have that response. The other response is to start yelling and screaming at them and rolling around on the ground and throwing punches. I mean, we don't need to go there. That, and that's almost like where they want you to go. And so you don't go there. You just say, we're done. We don't do this. That's not what I do. And, and instead, he says that the Lord's servant must not quarrel. The Lord's servant is sort of like very definitive, like who is the Lord's servant? In one sense, we're all the Lord's servant. But the way he's using this seems to be Timothy, pastors, leaders in the church. So if you are a new believer in Jesus Christ, okay, you're a new believer, then some of this is new to you, and you, you don't just change overnight. And that's okay. You know, we, we have, you know, we go and we stumble and we get up and we walk, and boy, it took me a long time, you know, to, to even get to where I am now, and, and I feel like I still have a long, long ways to go. So it's a continual growing process. Um, but we, we don't want to excuse ourselves too long. Um, Mark Foreman was a pastor of a church I used to attend. One of the things he used to say frequently is he'd say, if you've been a Christian for a year and a half, two and a half years, you're no longer a baby. It's time to grow up. You know, you, it's time, time that you really know what you believe in. You know, it takes a while, but after a couple of years, you should know the basics. You should have your foundation. Um, so, but there's a place where you start, but certainly when people are growing in their faith, we'd like to hope that they're not people that quarrel. They don't get into this kind of stuff. They don't get into these arguments all the time. And, and they're, they're able to teach, which is um, an interesting, uh, and they're kind to people, which is gentle and, and respectful. And they're able to teach, which is something that in First Timothy, he says that pastors and elders should be able to teach. And you go, man, I don't think that's right that I should have to get up there and speak like Ron. Well, but it's important. And so next week, we're going to start with Marnie. And <laughs> no, you know, that's... It's not, that you, it's not that we're all supposed to speak, um, but it is that to be able to teach doesn't mean that you're a gifted teacher or a public speaker or anything like that. It just means that you are able, you're able to plow that furrow. You're able to make a straight road. You're able to clearly explain the basics of your faith when people ask you questions. We just, we can answer the basic questions. And, and all of us should be shooting to do that. That should be something we want to do. And that we don't become resentful about those people that are, are frankly jerks out there. We just don't let them, we don't let them rile us. And we focus on what's true. And there are going to be those that oppose God, but he's, now listen, there, you know, on the other side, listen to the difference here. One side, there are people that you just don't spend time with. But then he says, there are people that oppose the truth that you still talk to them because they're still willing to listen. And you can have conversations with them. And you can learn from them, and they can learn from you. And he says, those people you instruct in a nice way, and you try to teach them. And why? Why do you spend time with them? Because sometimes you end up spending a lot of time with people. But I've spent a lot of time with people, and eventually, bang, it clicks, and, and it turns on. So you see, there's this balance here. The difference is, is this person really wants to know. They're asking a lot of questions. They're maybe opposing things, but then they're listening and they're coming back and they want more and eventually it clicks. And you want to do that because that way you can save them. From what? From the clutches of the devil. The word, come back to their senses, is a word for sobriety. Paul is painting a picture. Those that don't know Christ and are opposed to him are drunk on the wine of Satan. And just like when a person is drunk, they can't think right. Their mind is foggy. And the word of God is the coffee that sobers them up. And they need that coffee. And our job is to be the barista, you know, and give them the coffee. 
and love them. And then as we love them and we serve them, and they see how genuine we are and how much we care for them, then hopefully they will come to know Christ and, and there will be a difference in their own life. You know, this last year, Billy Graham uh, moved to heaven. And a lot of people talk about how you know, he'd speak to stadiums and thousands of people would come forward to hear him. And, and that was a modern miracle, really unbelievable that that happened. But what I enjoy most about Billy Graham listening to is not his sermons so much as his interviews. You ever listen to Billy Graham interviews? Very, very interesting. Now, when he got older, he got a little bit more befuddled, and he struggled a little bit in his 80s, and so he stopped giving interviews. But if you look at most of his life, he's unbelievable, because if you have interviews, the, notice that every time these people that are doing the interviews, they want to trip you up. They're doing that with everybody. They want to trip you up. They want to trap you. They want to get you to say something that you don't even believe. They want to cause controversy. They want to make it interesting. They want to get it juicy. And they're doing everything they can to to trip you up, to make you look bad. And they usually succeeded it. And they usually, when you talk, a lot of times you hear a pastor interviewed or a scholar interviewed, a lot of times they get them off on some tangent that doesn't even have to do with the Bible or just their personal belief, and they just get all emotionally upset. But they couldn't do that with Billy Graham. And he would joke around with Johnny Carson or Woody Allen, or he would be interviewed with, in a famous interview with Larry King, he talks to Larry King, and he's talking to Larry King about how he prays for him. He said, I've heard that you've had some things that I've been praying for you. And Larry King gets all misty-eyed and stops and says, you pray for me? And he says, yeah, I pray for you, and I will continue to pray for you. How? Next thing you know, he's ministering to him right on live television. And King's all choked up. He always got back to what the Bible said. He didn't go off on the tangents. And it's just such a good example for us. That's what he's saying here. Just get back to what does the Bible say? Let's not go there and there because we don't know and who cares. But here's what the Bible says about things. Here's what we do know. And here's the most important stuff. And how can this change your life? You know, and and that's, that's basically what we're talking about. So the final question that we really want to ask ourselves today uh, is do we gently instruct others in the gospel? Do we do it in a nice way? Um, do we just get angry and upset? I mean, and, and here's something really important because I hear this a lot today. There's a lot of times where we as, as followers of Christ can get angry at people and we kind of isolate ourselves. So they're the bad guys, we're the good guys. That's not the way it works. We're all bad guys, okay? Next to God, we're all bad guys and nobody else is any better than us or any worse than us. They're not worse than us just because they haven't known Christ. We're going to heaven because we know Christ. They're not because they don't. They don't know, and sometimes they're wonderful human beings whom we really like. Sometimes they're real jerks, personality-wise, whatever it is, but they're really, we're just as bad as they are because we're all sinners. We're, we're all just as bad. So we have to be careful that we don't do that, and we need to pray for them, and we need to love them. And we need, everybody needs to understand the basic message, which is that we need to admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior, Believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave and choose to follow Christ and put our faith in him alone. And if you haven't done that, please come and talk to us. And if you have, then gently, sensitively, lovingly, tell the 8 to 15 people or so in your life. Tell them you love them and appreciate them. Tell them about what you know about Jesus. Talk about issues, you know, and they bring up controversial issues. Tell them what the Bible might say about those things and just love them. I want to end with an, an example today that I thought was very... I just still remember this from the time I first read it. Ray Stedman was the great founding pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, a church that 
played a big role in a lot of ways in influencing me, at least, and us in a lot of ways that we do things here at our church. And there's a biography written about him called Profile of Integrity, written by Mark Mitchell, a friend of mine who actually spoke here once. Um, But here's an interesting story. I just want to read this story to you. Listen to this. We'll end with this. Ray's penchant for embracing the disenfranchised drew in many who normally would not enter a church. But Ray was never one to passively wait for people to show up in the pews. Thus, in the spring of 1975, this is way back there now, Ray's now with the Lord, he and an intern attended a meeting of gay students at Stanford University, which featured two speakers. One, a gay woman who was a professor at San Francisco State University, and the other, a gay man who was ordained in the United Church of Christ. Ray listened to them speak for over an hour. The woman was vitriolic and denounced the church at almost every turn. Uh, The young man was milder and told of his experience of rejection in the church. When opportunity was given for audience participation, Ray stepped up to the microphone. I'm Ray Stedman, the pastor of Peninsula Bible Church here in Palo Alto, he said. On behalf of the church, I want to apologize for much of what I've heard today. You're right. The church has failed you in many ways. We oftentimes have not shown the love of Jesus. He then went on to talk about, tell about freedom from a lifestyle that ultimately is destructive. When he finished, the crowd gave him a standing ovation and many approached him for further discussion. That's what Paul's talking about today to be able to disagree. I'm not trying to pick on homosexuality here, people that may be gay or whatever. There may be somebody here. The Bible teaches against it. But not because we're against them because we want to help. Because we love them enough to try to help. But we can still love one another. And we can disagree in a polite and kind way. And there will be some people always that just will not listen. But often we'll be surprised how many people, when they see how much we genuinely care, even though we disagree, it will impact our lives for good. May God raise up more people like Ray Stedman. May we live that way. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for that example at the end, and thank you for the example overall of Paul and what he says to Timothy. Uh, Lord, may we um, be, teach what is true, trust it to you, And be kind and not quarrelsome, not getting quarrels, but be kind to those that really listen. Even if we disagree strongly in different things in the Bible, that we can still still love one another and care for each other where we're at. And start there and teach the truth in love. Lord, I pray that you'd enable us to do that. And if there's anybody here that doesn't yet know you, I pray that they'd come to know you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.